like to ask for your attention. Tonight, would love to address uh, a topic that is dear to my heart. Uh, it is the topic of noble friendship or admirable friendship. Um, for those of you familiar with Buddhist teaching, it um, is referred to in this teaching as Kalyana Mitata. Mita is the friend, Mitata is the friendship. And the word kalyana is a bit more complicated. It holds something of a middle ground between wholesome, admirable, beautiful, good. If you try to imagine the geometrical middle in meaning between wholesome, beautiful, admirable, good, then you come roughly to the meaning of that term. Um... To many Western Buddhist practitioners or meditators, the Buddha's teaching emphasizes solitude, independence, um, self-responsibility, uh, no liberation from outside. On the whole, pretty sort of self-sufficient business, yeah? pretty autonomous job to be done. The vision of liberation is something nobody else can do to me. I am the owner of my karma, heir of my karma, born of my karma, and so forth. This is true. All this is totally true. It can be found in all traditions of Buddhist teaching, save a few Japanese exceptions to this, uh, or a few Chinese side teachings where Amitabha Buddha can do a lot for you. But on the whole, it's basically your own responsibility to wake up. And the early Buddhist teaching, the Buddha is very clear. The Buddha is a teacher. Amongst the many miracles he has performed, he himself rates the, the highest of miracles, the miracle of teaching. The miracle of instruction, to be more exact. And this is his role. This is how he understands himself as one who points the way. This is precious. But obviously it entails that we are willing to go the way. It is not enough to have a key and worship the key when we're sitting in an incarcerated and somebody slips us a key, it is not enough if we hang this key onto the wall, pray to it, make prostrations, and revere it for the rest of our locked-up days. That is not the same as if we are willing to actually put the key in the lock, turn, and open the door and walk out. So the Buddha, in his own understanding, is one who hands us a key. The onus is on us to make use of that key and to apply what he has, apply ourselves to the path he has pointed to. He himself says, I actually haven't invented that path. It's an old path. I have just been, after it has been forgotten, I have been the first one to find it. So he considers himself to be a cyclical 
experience. Being a Buddha is something that, if we believe the Buddha, uh, happens time and again. He was not at all the first. He was only the first after the last one has been forgotten. It may surprise at the end of this sometimes sternly propagated teaching of self-responsibility, personal initiative. Uh, It may surprise to find that if we turn the page in the Buddhist teaching, we find a tremendous appreciation of how other people can help us. Once we have accepted the responsibility, once we stop either relying on somebody to fix it for us or relying on somebody to uh, be blamed for the things that we're not happy with, once we have started owning up, uh, others can actually do quite a lot. We can do a lot for others. And it... It's no surprise to me that if I look at the Buddha's life and the Buddha's teaching, I see not just what he says, but also how he has uh, formed his monastic communities, both of monks and of nuns. And in that monastic community, the name already is program, um, most of the rules deal with living together, the whole monastic vehicle is not a vehicle of individual ascetic practitioners, but it is a vehicle for a community. It is the blueprint for communal living. In fact, as far as I know, it's the first grassroot democratic manifesto I know of in human history. Um, If I look at some of the teachings of the Buddha and look at how he has framed his monastic rules, for example, his disciplinary code, then it is no secret that he has favoured a particular model of society which was documented in the Sakyan Republic in the north of India in those days. Uh, Republic under a governor, one of the governors was uh, the Buddha's, or Siddhartha Gautama's father, and a man who had albeit considerable powers, uh, not complete powers. And he had a constitution of a council and there were various decisions he needed to uh, take the interest of another ruler uh, as part of his concerns. In that model was a very direct democratic understanding of meeting doing business, uh, of accountability, and such like. And it is very clear to me that the Buddha, when he started to form his monastic discipline, had this as a model. This is how he uh, suggested to his monks. It was the monks' order that was founded first. It is how he suggested to his monks that they should live together, that they should conduct business, that they should be accountable to each other how they should congregate, how they should um, refer to conflicts. So the Buddha was very clear in the value of relationship, the value of harmony, 
the value also of how we can meet and how we can be together. The fact that we, when we come together, create an ambience. We create a relational field and in that field it can be more helpful for growth or if that field is not good it can be more difficult to grow or to trust or to collect oneself. It is very obvious to me that if I study the Buddhist teaching that it is the aspect of individuality in there is given some weight. We have different stories, we have different virtues, talents, challenges, and we need to rely on our will. We need to rely on our strength, on our power, on our judgment, and move. But in that moving towards liberation or towards acknowledgement of a deeper truth, or however you want to frame it, in that movement we are far from alone. And we can be helped or hindered considerably. One of the things that distinguishes the Buddha from other religious teachers of his day, and remember he was not a singular experience, he was, he was uh, one exponent of a big movement that had started quite a while before him, One of the things that singles him out is how serious he takes the constitution of his community. He didn't just have a bunch of followers like other teachers of his day. He actually was keen on helping his disciples, relating not just properly to him as their teacher, but also to relate to each other in ways that he found salubrious. That is something that distinguishes him from other teachers of his day. So he was quite from the beginning interested in creating a community that was capable of living without him. Now, I think this is a big statement. Yeah, there is. Um, and he did so. He, uh, quite early on in his um, l- Life as a teacher, he found success. If success is having people who are dedicated and who have realization in his teaching, and several of these people have come down to us as great teachers. It is interesting, and I'd like to encourage you to interest yourself for these topics. If you see the diversity of temperaments and characters of his early disciples. It is quite stark how different they are. I have always found that inspiring. Um, some of these people are intelligent. Some of them are not. Some of them are analytic. Some of them are not. Some of them uh, have a lot of obstacles. Some of them don't. Yeah. They show various predilections, character, temperament, uh, how social they are or how uh, singular. You find many, many 
stories about these disciples and you can gather from the teachings of the Buddha much about these people, about how they lived, how they were similar and how they were dissimilar. And yet, they all were great disciples. They all had degrees of realization. And they all shared a common life. They shared a common life together as a monastic community. One of these people, called Ananda, which means bliss, uh, was a cousin of the Buddha, and was a devout uh, disciple of his, and looked after the Buddha for many years. He's also famed for his memory, and he was occasionally cocky. You know, he liked being affirmed by his teacher and asked questions. Questions sometimes that were not genuine questions insofar as they required an answer, but questions in which he wished to be confirmed by his point taken in the question. And we owe Ananda a lot because some of his questions have... Uh, brought the Buddha to elucidate a particular point. So at one stage, Ananda addressed the Buddha and said it would appear to him that half of the holy life, that was the spiritual life as a monastic, uh, as a religious seeker, half of the holy life would be noble friendship, admirable friendship, companionship with those who are uh, noble and admirable. It's quite a statement, yeah. You have a monastic community making considerable gestures of renunciation, uh, hearing exhortations that they should talk little, that they should seek seclusion, and then Ananda comes and says, half of this life is the practice of noble companionship, of admirable friendship. And then the Buddha, in his... One of his famous responses to Ananda, usually they go something like, say not so, Ananda, say not so, uh, responds, it is not so, as he says. It is not half of the life that he has taught, but the whole of the life that he has taught that consists of noble and admirable and good friendship and good companionship. The Buddha was asked on other occasions and he suggested that uh, he does not see a single quality that is more conducive to the process of awakening than the company of people who are admirable, that people who associate in admirable friendship with each other. It seems surprising that somebody who is framed for a teaching of silent meditation and the active encouragement to do retreats and seek seclusion and introspection uh, is somebody who seems to take relationships so serious. Um, 
Many, many other instances in his teaching led us to lead us to similar conclusions. At one stage, he he looks for qualities that give rise to the eightfold path. You understand the eightfold path is at once a path that is to be walked. That is a practice, uh, the Eightfold Path as an exercise, as something to be done, developed, cultivated, brought to life. And the word Samma in uh, each of those eight limbs of the Eightfold Path can also mean complete. It doesn't just mean right, as in, say, right view, right action, right speech, right uh, uh, intention. It also can mean complete or perfect. So the Buddha, on one level, states the Eightfold Path as a a practice, sort of that's the therapeuticum of his uh, teaching. But he also states if the Eightfold Path has been completed, that is the culmination of the Buddhist teaching. So he asks, what are the qualities that give rise to, to the Eightfold Path. And he says, as as the dawn is the precursor of sunrise, so there are seven qualities precursor of the Eightfold Path. And the first of those qualities is noble friendship. This friendship is good friendship. Kalyanamitata. Just as a footnote, the last one is another uh, quality much underestimated. It is called uh, wise fathoming. It is the capacity to profoundly reflect. The word for it in Pali, for those interested, is yoniso manasikara, which means um, a, a radical type of awareness to the functioning of mind. A type of appropriate awareness to the process of one's own experience. Imagine these two qualities as pillars for the Eightfold Path. On one hand, it is that which you engage with and can engender through the company of good friends. On the other hand, it is your it is the appropriate attention to your own process of experience both of these are the gateway for the arising of the noble eightfold path i have always found this to be quite inspiring because on one hand the last of these qualities yonisamana sikara suggests that the key to that which makes me free and happy can be found in me attending appropriately to my own process of experience. Not in doing horse sacrifices, not in petitioning my particular set of gods, not in um, believing something, but in appropriately attending uh, in an inquiring way to my own process of experience. Now look around in the 5th century BC, where 
Where do you find the religious teaching that is so empowering? That suggests if you want to find out uh, about happiness, about freedom and about awakening, turn to your own experience, turn to your own perceptual process, to your own physical process, to your own process of consciousness. I find that very, very empowering as a statement. And the other statement is, if you associate with people who are admirable, who are good friends, then you are likely to learn. Now we know that most of our learning happens through and with and in the company of others. Think for a moment. Take 20 seconds and think. If you subtract all the people in your life, all what you have learned with others, through others, in the company of others, if you subtract all that, subtract all that from what you believe to be right now, what you believe to know right now, how much is left? How much is left? What you have figured out just on your own. It is true, others cannot imbue us with wisdom. Others cannot resolve our challenges. Others cannot take away what we have been born with. But others can tremendously inspire us. Others can tremendously help us. Others can tremendously encourage us. Others can be uh, exemplary in many, many ways. If I make that little subtraction, there is very little. There is very little left of myself if I subtract all what I have learned with and through and in the company of others. Most of my learning has been with others. It is true, I have always liked to meditate. I have always found that as, as soon as I met it when I was 15 and later when it got a little more serious when I was 20, I, uh, since I have always felt strength there, I've always felt there is a power and the source of vitality and stillness that awaits me. But much of my learning hasn't happened on the cushion. Much of my learning hasn't happened in the solitude of my meditative pursuit. Much of my learning has happened and continues to happen with other human beings, you know, often in less than optimal circumstances of stillness or of pristine insight. You know. It's very difficult to stay squeaky clean when you're trying to learn. You know. The Buddhist teaching for the human realm is a teaching he referred to as the Brahma-vihara, the four immeasurable qualities. You find them on the flip side of your refuge chanting. I was going to inflict that on you, that we chant that together, but uh, I've decided otherwise. I would recommend you nevertheless read. What you have there is the straight meditation instruction up out of the Pali Canon, untampered with, just translated. Uh, it is a, a set of four 
basic capacities of the human heart. One is love, one is compassion, one is joy, or sympathetic joy, and one is equanimity. Um, this is a powerful teaching. They are not strictly emotional qualities. They are, on the deepest level, something that we cannot lose. We can forget them, they can be occluded, but we cannot really lose it. It, It's inbuilt, it's hardwired. The capacity for this makes us truly human. Whether you know this, whether you believe this, whether you have conscious access to these, they're there. On their deepest, most level, this is what constitutes our humanity. This is the background of all vision for growth, awakening, health, sanity, in the Buddha's vision of human beings. This is what underpins the whole Buddhist path, that the human heart is intrinsically capable of loving, capable of responding compassionately to the suffering of others, capable of being resonant in joy, capable of a profound equanimity. Notice all four of those are relational aspects. On a second level, these four qualities are virtues. Virtues are things that we can develop. We develop them by, firstly, recognizing them. Secondly, by affirming them. Thirdly, by trying to evoke them and by trying to maintain them if they are to some degree present. On a third level, they're meditation exercises. They're meditational objects. We can cultivate these four Brahma-viharas as part of meditative exercise. So this is the black, this is the blue, uh, what's that in English? This is the the blueprint of humanity. This is the blueprint of how we could relate in the human realm. If we look a bit closer what the Buddha says about friendship, how he is, for example, uh, an example himself, then we see that he has responded very caringly to human beings. His collection of teachings is not a system. Um, It is not a neat sort sort of worked-out program, the kind of the Buddha method for samsara management or something like that. It is far from that. It is the testimony of people close to the Buddha who remember situational teachings. One of the trickiness about the Buddha's text collections is it is not systematic. That's what the commentaries have tried to do later, and later tradition who have anthologized the early suttas, the early uh, uh, sermons of the Buddha. The Buddha has met with people and he has responded to situations. 
And many of his sutta teachings are the account of how such an encounter has happened, has taken place. The advantage is it feels quite authentic when you read it. You get a feeling uh, so-and-so has turned up. Uh, it was the end of the rainy season and then uh, towards the evening when the Buddha came from his meditation uh, and gathered with some of his community, so-and-so came and asked his question. And then the Buddha answered. And he didn't answer in general, he answered quite specifically. And you will notice very soon when you read Buddhist teachings that the Buddha speaks in a variety of voices. Sometimes he's witty and terse. Sometimes he is allegorical and almost fairy tale like Sometimes he uses a lot of similes and metaphors. Sometimes he's very philosophical in his discourse. All this quite clearly in response to whoever is his interlocutor or uh, his audience. Sometimes he speaks with children. Uh, there's a weaver girl, a 16-year-old weaver girl, whom he seeks out explicitly because he knows she's going to die. Sometimes he speaks to educated people. Sometimes he speaks to not-so-educated people. Not all of his teaching is a success, by the way. Yeah. Some people shake their heads, frown their foreheads and walk away. Yeah. In fact, his, his teaching career started this way. Started off with a big flop, I think one would say today. After having been in the joy and the bliss of his enlightenment experience for several weeks, he makes his way over from Bodhgaya to uh, Sarnat near Benares, and on the way he meets a fellow whom we know very little of, other than he was a... Um, Obviously, somebody interested, and he asks, "You look good. You look good, Samanagotama. You look good. What have you found out?" And then the Buddha thundered, "I am the completely self-enlightened one. I am perfect in my understanding." And the fellow kind of shook his head and said, "May it be so, friend," and walked away. <clears throat> yeah. It was true, yeah, it was a very true statement, but it wasn't maybe pedagogically the most appropriate thing he could have said, you know, if winning over this fellow was a task. Maybe, maybe he understood that uh, this man wasn't ready for the teaching and nothing has been lost in this way and even a lengthy analytic discussion wouldn't have helped. But to me it sounds like uh, something could have been handled a little more pedagogically skillful and skillful. Anyway, uh, later on he was more fortunate. He met up with his older disciples and uh, convinced them, against their will, by the way, uh, that he had something to say. And that's when his teaching started to uh, roll as, as, the, as the symbol of the wheel... Uh, that has come down to us suggests yeah the first of his teachings is the tamachaka tama the rolling of the setting in motion of the wheel of the law in what follows then for the next 45 years of his life is a consistent 
and often strenuous effort to create a communal lifestyle, to create a communal situation in which people from all walks of life, men and to everybody's surprise, women, can go forth and practice and find circumstances in which it is favorable for for them to put his teaching into a practice leading to realization. And he's quite successful at that. And one of the things that makes him succeed is his social organizational skills, you would probably say today. It is true some of his monks have been loners. Some of his monks have cherished seclusion, have praised seclusion. Many of his monks have not. Many of his monks have looked after other monks. And it is due to their care and their uh, concern for people with lesser understanding, lesser talents, lesser degrees of experience that his community has grown. It is quite clear that if it was had been only upon him to convey his teaching, uh, he would have had a lot less uh, effect on at large. Yeah? The fact that his teaching has caught on to such a degree is directly due that he has empowered very early on in his career other people to help with the teaching, to convey their understanding, and to convey it in very different ways. I like to say just a few things about the good friend. The Buddha speaks in various instances about qualities of a good friend. What distinguishes a good friend? He also speaks about not so good friends. People who are friends on the way down. Um, he cautions us to exert great care in the choice of companionship because he says if we are together with other people we will be influenced by them if you ever have done a mountain hike or something bigger a pilgrimage or did a strength, a strenuous tour somewhere, you will know the quality and your companions will be a large part of the experience. Okay, the weather is important. You know, your equipment is quite crucial. But uh, your companions will make much of what your experience is going to be like. Yeah. If you're out of civilization, you will need to depend on them. They will depend on you. Um, you will get everything, their recklessness, their grumpiness, their helpfulness, their generosity, their strength, their endurance, their patience, their stroppiness, everything will be part of your experience. As soon as you're in the same boat, yeah. whatever they are, however they decide to be with themselves and with others, uh, this is what will be part of your experience. Should you happen to be married or in a firm relationship, you will definitely know uh, that the quality of how your uh, significant other is is going to be a significant quality in your life. Yeah? 
The same holds true for monastic communities. Um, I can assure you, if you haven't uh, uh, been a monastic in your life, uh, I can assure you this is, holds exactly true. There is nothing you will escape there. Maybe sexual jealousies and child-rearing problems, but other than that, most of what you will think comes up in relationship uh, uh, tends to come up in relationship in monasteries as well. So how we relate and with whom we relate is obviously crucial. What are qualities that single out a good friend, an admirable friend? What make a Kalyana Mitta? One thing is the Buddha says, he gives what is hard to give. He does what is hard to do. He or she bears what is hard to bear. He, he or she does not despise me if I am poor. He or she does not leave me if I am in uh, misfortune. A good friend is somebody who emulates, sorry, a good friend is somebody who instills in me the wish to emulate his qualities. A good friend is somebody who I admire. A good friend is somebody who instills in me love. A good friend is somebody who is capable of listening. Deep listening. A good friend is capable of giving profound advice. Notice the sequence. There are quite a few people who are more than willing to give advice before listening, or in fact, so that they don't have to listen. Just don't you tell me. I tell you your problem and I tell you what you do. And you just leave me in peace afterwards. A good friend is somebody with whom it is possible to touch on deep subjects, deep topics. A good friend is somebody who uh, takes care of me not squandering my time, my money, my health, my strength. He's somebody who looks out for my needs and he tries to stir me away from wasting my strength. That gives us quite a picture already. A good friend is generous. A good friend, when asked little, gives more. A good friend is somebody who cares. All this is said. It is then, occasionally, you find juxtaposed with people who pretend to be good friends. Yeah. There is one guy called a good friend in words. Yeah who praises himself, a good friend who only flatters, a good friend who only does things for me 
if not doing them would bring him loss. Yeah. A good friend who only takes. All these are so-called false good friends. The good friends on the way down is a good friend who is my companion in gambling, in squandering, in wasting time, in pursuing futile uh, activities. Drinking, debauchery is mentioned. And the image is used, the good friend on the way down is like you have a big basin to collect water, a big tank. And it has inlets and outlets. And the good friend on the way down is like closing the inlets and opening the outlets. Yeah. That's the result of the good friend on the way down. Yeah. If we look at um, some virtues in <clears throat> the way the Buddha encouraged his disciples to live together, we see, besides the encouragement to seek solitude, independence, and self-sufficiency for part of one's life, we see side by side the encouragement to seek out the company of others and to deepen one's understanding in discussion with others. To not just figure it out for yourself and then kind of crystallize your opinionate your opinions around it, but actually you go and seek out others and question question them and question the validity of your own understanding. Amongst the duties of a teacher towards his disciple is not just the instruction and the admonishment. Uh, it is also the cross-questioning. You will easily recognize in this uh, early version of what we probably find in Tibetan debating practice today. Yeah. The understanding that if being asked a few uh, pertinent and sharp questions, that this clarifies our mind, that this puts us on the spot we begin to understand what we have really understood. We have to explain. Whenever you have to explain, it shows whether you have understood something. It's no guarantee. You sometimes can explain excellently things that you haven't really deeply, experientially understood. But if you can't even explain them, it is very sure that you haven't understood them. So, the Buddha suggests that his monks meet. The Buddha suggests that they discuss their understanding, that they test out, that they seek each other out actively and spend quite a long time, yeah, quite a long time together, finding out whether their knowledge is genuine, whether it is corroborated by the experience of others, whether it is lacking, whether it can be validated. Yeah, there is a lot of encouragement to do that. So it seems if the monastic blueprint is something to go by, we're encouraged to kind of oscillate between spending time with ourselves in introspection 
and then seeking out, actively seeking out others and deepening our understanding one in introspection together with others. Affirming uh, what is valid and supporting each other. The shared inquiry deepening both our relationship and deepening our understanding. Consider in your own life, who who are your good friends? Whom are you good friend to? If you sit here now thinking, where are all my good friends? You know, none of them is really doing fine on all the counts. So uh, ask yourself for whom you are willing to be a good friend. Ask yourself where this happens in your life. If you don't have good friends, consider seeking out making opportunity to find good friends. Mostly we find friends through sympathy. We find friends by seeking out people whom we like, whom we find in some ways attractive or pleasant. Um, Kalyanamitita is not an act of sympathy. It is not about liking. It is a channel. It is a channel in which we meet other human beings whom we know share our aspiration. And that channel may not be the same channel as it is the one we need to have people to go to the beach with or to spend our leisure with. Uh, the channel of Kalyanamitita is something we are able to live with people who may not be part of our social club. Yeah. It is a clear encouragement of, uh, in the Buddhist teaching to seek out people and uh, address them on the level of noble friendship. That doesn't mean you are going to figure them into your social life somehow or you're trying to organize them into your club. Yeah. That's not the purpose of this. You, I'm sure, know how to do that very well. But the good friend is somebody who is on, is not a great teacher, necessarily. It is not somebody who is um, complete in his practice. It is not somebody whom you find it impossible to compare yourself with. A good friend is somebody who is on eye level with you. It is somebody who is an experienced peer. Um, And it is that relationship you're looking for, that relationship you seek out for. And often this needs cultivation. Do not expect this to happen by itself. I, I have been a member of a monastic community for 20 years of my adult life and many people who were not part of that monastic community felt like a monastic community is a sort of uh, an extension of a sort of existential womb. It's a kind of a falling into a fantastic space where you are at one with a group of like-minded people in perfect harmony who have kind of come to acknowledge a deep truth in their life and because being moved by that truth, they uh, felt willing and capable of giving up much and joining a monastic life, uh, joining uh, a bhikkhu or a nansanga. 
and I have found that image to be rather romantic. (laughs) I have found that image to be the sort of image people have from outside of things. If your notion of a meal is kind of uh, two veggies and a sausage and a salad... And this is your notion of food and eating and a, a good meal. Then, um, say, the notion of vegetarianism will not be very appealing to you because it'll probably mean, you know, two veggies, a salad without the sausage. Yeah. <laughs> so your perspective on vegetarianism will be largely defined on what you don't get from what you know. Yeah. If you look at monasteries from that vantage point you generally look at monasteries and say basically it's it's kind of getting old living with difficult people with without tv sex and football yeah <laughs> and obviously there is some truth in this yeah <laughs> but it doesn't really do justice to the vision and what is possible say within a monastery as little as it does justice uh, to uh, define vegetarianism in terms of the absence of sausages. Yeah? There is a, something inherently limited in such a perspective. With good friends, uh, with sangha, with any, any deepening, it needs commitment. It needs a decision on your part to hold something to hold relationship, yeah? to be willing to stay, to go, to stay, to hang in, and to continue. That is needed. Sangha is more than anything an act. It's something you do. It's not something you get. It's not a kind of uh, one safe way of regressing into impunity, into some big oceanic experience with like-minded people where no bad thing is ever going to harm you and you're always in good company. That wasn't my experience. And I think my experience was quite a good one. It is an act. You do, Sangha. It is something you do. You affirm this. This takes effort. This means you have to put up energy. You have to seek out. You have to handle things. You have to engage things that you may not want to engage. The same holds true for a Kalyanamitta. It's something you do. It's not something you sit around mopping and waiting and kind of, sorry, not mopping, moping and, and kind of waiting till it happens to me finally because some kind of bodhisattva finally takes pity on me and presents me with a good friend. It's something you do, you seek out, you cultivate, you practice. So please uh, consider the blessing of friendship not something you have to wait and uh, eternally before it starts happening. If you feel you don't have good friends, uh, be one. Do it. Seek out human beings and be a good friend to them. Be uh, inspiring to them. 
be a listener, be a good counselor, be somebody who looks after them, be somebody who is willing to receive their love, their affection, their admiration. It is time for this Buddhist teaching to come out of its meditation rooms, come out of its closets, come out of its uh, secluded little niches. Yeah. Imagine the Franciscans were in Tibet in the 13th century. Yeah. The Buddhists have taken quite a long time to go over here to the West. And though you may not have a great missionary zeal, and I do not ask you to kind of go and convert your neighbors or march with flaming crosses into deserts or things like that, uh, if this is any good, what you practice, what you learn here from this teaching, practice it by God. Put it to use, you know. Seek out people with whom you feel kinship, with whom you feel uh, shared aspirations. Don't hide. Uh, I'm not seeking to convert you to convert others. That's not the point. You're not going to make Buddhists. Yeah? That's not the deal. The deal is you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're, you're going to live as a loving, compassionate, as a joyous and as an equanimous human being in relationship with others. That's the deal. That's the mission. Yeah? Be a good, a completely good human being and acknowledge the goodness that you carry rather than identify with the challenges in your life, the bits that don't feel so good or the bits that you think are hang-ups. You acknowledge the power you have to be a capable, caring, loving, compassionate, joyous and equanimous human being and you engage these capacities in relationship with the people who are you are with. Not with the millions of Chinese who live over in China whom you're going to never meet uh, and you take them up in your meditation practice and uh, think this is done with. No, uh, do that. That's not bad. It's good for you, it's good for them. But do it with your neighbors. Do it with your kids. Do it with your partners. Do it with the folks you love. Do it with the, park, with the folks you live with. Uh, don't wait till you meet the right people to practice these things. Yeah. practice them with the people you are with and you will feel certainly a lot more at home with these people so on this missionary note I'd like to end yeah. <laughs> let's in a quick nutshell a good friend somebody who inspires love who inspires admiration and respect somebody who is capable of listening capable of giving advice, somebody who is capable of and interested in touching on deep topics, touching on existential subjects in life, somebody whose care extends to my resources, my health, my wealth, my time, and who tries to stir me away from wastage in that in, in these domains. Yeah, I think that gives some ideas of a vision of a good friend. Good. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.